As you may remember, this year we're taking a deep dive, working with 12 classic spiritual disciplines, one each month. The basic format is the first release of the month, I'll do a teaching of sorts. And then the next two releases will be interviews where I sit down and talk with folks about their practice of the discipline, things that they've learned. And then at the end of the month, I'll have a roundtable discussion of a variety of people in that, including Richard Foster. And with that, we'll have a chance to work with some questions that you send in. You can leave those at podcast at renovare.org. That's podcast at renovare.org. The human mind, it's amazing. The ability to hold a thought, an idea. We can focus on things, imagine things, work things in our head, and sometimes they move into our hearts. We do this with a great many things, any number of topics that we can meditate on. Oh, we can meditate on our hopes and dreams, maybe new projects. Maybe it's the news or sports, play, maybe mathematic equations. We can also meditate on things that are destructive. Meditate on gossip, fear, worry, even hate. We sift through these ideas, we hold them in our head, we're with them. And they become with us, in our heads and sometimes even in our hearts. But we can also meditate on goodness, truth, beauty. We can take a cue from the psalmist and meditate on the word day and night. The practice of Christian meditation, that's the discipline we get to work with this month. My name is Nathan Foster. And welcome to the Renovare Weekly Podcast. So before I say a few comments on meditation, I want to talk about accents. As I was with the Renovare Institute in Seattle last week, I was listening to Trevor Hudson teach. Many of you know Trevor. I think we've had a couple interviews with him on the podcast. He has the most beautiful South African accent. But more than that, he brings his own accent of his life, his experiences. An entire career of pastoral care comes through in his teaching, and that's part of his accent. And then I looked around the room at the other teachers there, and begin to see how they each have their own accent. They each bring something uniquely special. And how if everybody sounded the same, it wouldn't necessarily be helpful to us. That we need each other's accents. We need to hear from each other's experiences. And then I looked around the room and had this profound sense that many people live with a sort of inadequacy from their accent. That for many people, the experiences they've had, the gifts that they've had, positive and negative, tends to color and give shape and form to their own life with God, that our own formation into the likeness of Jesus 
has all these different flavors of experiences we've had, gifts we bring. And I had this sense that we needed to not bemoan that, but maybe begin to celebrate that. And so I offer that to you, is that many of you come from a variety of backgrounds, and that potentially can be very helpful. And so maybe you've um, had commitments to your children and stayed out of formal work environments to be with your kids. That helps shapes who you are. That helps shapes your life with God. Maybe you've taken a season of your life to help a loved one die, and you've gotten to be a caretaker, watching the suffering, watching the wrestling, giving of your time and attention. All that helps shape your formation. It's really beautiful. And some of you are very educated. And some of you have done PhDs and really detailed dissertations. This is good. This is helpful. This is your accent. And some of you struggle with learning issues and reading a book is painful for you. Um, That's your accent. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And then many of you come from a variety of different denominational backgrounds. And in each one, there's probably wonderful gifts that you gained and probably some challenges. These become our accents. They become our experiences, our gifts. They become who we are. And then this plays out in our life with God and particularly our practice of the disciplines. Some things come very natural for us. That's good. Some things are a little more challenging. That's good too. What brought this up for me is as I was thinking about what to share on the discipline of Christian meditation, I was reminded of my own journey with it and my own accent. And so as we begin to look at meditation, I thought I might show you something I learned from my accent. I have another biking story for you. Actually, it's really the only other one I have. (laughs) But it deals with winter and spring and meditation. So I thought it would be appropriate to share with you today. My commute to work is 10 miles by bike on a wooded path. Steadying my cadence, I pound out the first few miles while a confident breeze begins its arduous process of ripping the stress and worries from my scattered mind. Somewhere between mile two and mile four, I stop asking why I didn't drive or wear warmer clothes, and I melt into the hum of my tires gently caressing the earth. It's here that God's great book of nature weaves a kind of magic, and the remaining miles often become a mix of birthed ideas, untangled problems, and chapters I intend to write. An array of wildlife joins me on my commuting adventure. I've seen turtles, frogs, beavers, cats, muskrat, foxes, marmots, mice, even a few snakes. I can count on hearing birds chirping about and watching the occasional eagle or hawk gliding above. There are always deer. Because I want to be like St. Francis, I talk and sing to my deer. 
I even slow down and give space for their reply. No two days are alike. As it is in life, change is always brewing. Nature's quiet brutality is on full display during a Michigan winter. The ground is covered with snow for all but a handful of days, while the sun sleeps behind the clouds. Life's a blurry mix of cold and gray. The angst and sadness of winter are what first drove me outdoors to exercise. Running or biking in a blizzard was my way of declaring independence from winter's spell. Winter doesn't have to own me. Circumstances don't always have to dictate my life. My body can adapt. Part of what drives young men off to war drives me into the cruel cold. With snow tires intact, biking in the winter addresses my frustration at living the life of an emasculated male working at a desk. During winter, nature is busy. Trees do most of their growing as roots search deep, plumbing the earth in search of nutrients. In a season that seems dormant and asleep, God is active. Those are good metaphors for spiritual formation. As harsh as Michigan's winter is, its spring is equally glorious. Sure, green covers most of the country a good month before it reaches Michigan, but nowhere except up north does such an enchantment permeate the air when winter's cruel curse is released. Down every street, herds of resurrected people emerge from their homes. Cheerfully, they rake falls left over moldy leaves, plant bulbs, go for walks and play. Frost subsiding is a truly communal form of awakening, one of the few I've experienced. The old deer with their winter battered coats walk with a sense of pride. It won't be long until they're able to parade their delicately spotted young. The fruit of winter's labor will soon be on full display. In the midst of early summer bike rides, my own personal winter had begun, a debilitating knee and extreme back pain. I would spend a week confined to bed and over a month off the bike. It would be fall before I'd be able to handle the 20-mile round trip to work again. When I'm riddled with debilitating anxiety, the occasional depressive spell, or the normal chaos of life, managing work and family feels unbearable, and exercise is my main treatment. It's the medicine that I've become dependent upon in order to function in life. My therapist says exercise is a way of cooking chemicals in my head that have a sedating effect. To some extent, I think she's right. Exercise is a natural way for my body to regulate mood. Having my ability to exercise taken away was, in a sense, similar to a horse being denied a pasture. At least it felt that way. In excruciating pain, I lay in bed, jealously watching my community come alive on a pristine 70-degree day. In my suffering and disappointment, I planted frustration, self-pity nurtured and watered it. Soon it was budding with anger, and within days, bitterness was in full bloom. Bitterness, of course, effectively functions as a poison that soon bleeds onto everyone around. I was irritable. In the middle of an argument, my insightful wife suggested that it might be time to work on the discipline of meditation. 
I quickly explained that she obviously didn't understand my situation. Gracefully, she reminded me that today, a lot of people were in hospital beds begging God to have what I had. Ouch. After the sting of my pride subsided, I decided to give meditation a try. In silence, I gently turned my attention away from my self-pity and toward God. I let my barrage of thoughts drift by. I breathed and I listened. After some time, my mind shifted to my current predicament, and a smile burst forth. I found myself reminded of God's uncanny ability to make good out of bad, and that love calls me to grow, die to self, and to suffer well. Soon I was overcome with calm. My edges were softened. Life felt workable. Reinhold Niebuhr said it well in the seldom quoted second half of his famous serenity prayer. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Within days, I found that meditation filled the mental void that my injuries had left. Meditation seemed to mirror my experiences exercising. For years, I'd seen the bike not as a way to improve my physique, although that was a nice benefit, but rather as a way to reset my head, a mental reboot of sorts. When I walked out the door to bike, hike, run, or swim, this was my chance to grab a few moments of silence. It was a time for quiet reflection and an opportunity to steal my soul. It was the aspect of biking I felt that I needed the meditative part? Does meditation cook chemicals in my brain? While physical, mental, and innate awareness of God's presence or voice is one of the most glorious things a human can experience, God's hiddenness is as much an act of love as His presence, like the trees digging its root deep in the earth, desperately searching for water it needs to survive. We pursue God in spite of what we experience or feel. God's seeming absence is vital for the growth of our souls. Spiritual maturity requires presence and longing. Years ago, when I was first introduced to the idea of sitting in God's presence, a good five minutes was about all I could handle. It's here again that I need to let go of my obsession with progress. While I haven't intentionally meditated with regularity, it has quietly become a major part of my life. And it's only after years of practice that I can now sit for extended periods of time. Yet I find it doesn't take long to reset my attention to the work of the Spirit brooding and hovering about, pursuing and loving His creation. So when I find a moment or two, I welcome God's presence and find, as Henry Nouwen said, 
the inner fire of God is tended and kept alive. There's much to say about the discipline of Christian meditation. Many different invitations. And so maybe as we begin this month, a moment of pause. What are the things that you meditate on? There are those kind of benign things, maybe new house projects or plans, trips, vacations, creative endeavors. Of course, there's those destructive things, ways I don't get my own way, how others aren't doing what I want them to do, how evil is running rampant in our world, all things we can meditate on. How about beauty and wonder of the Trinity? How about love? How about goodness? Have fun. I'll see you next week.